0: You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by
1: allwork.space. Are you ready? Welcome to the Future of Work podcast from allwork.space. I'm Joe Mernier, and together with my co-host Frank Cottle, Today, we're going to be speaking with John Arenas, founder and CEO of Serendipity Labs, to learn his thoughts on the future of work and his vision for one of America's most successful flexible workspace companies. So welcome, John, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank
0: you ever for having me.
1: Okay, so I know that Frank's really eager to chat with you, but before I let him take over, first, I'd like to hear about your experiences pre-Serendipity Labs. Um, I know you've been in the flexible workspace business for quite some time, since the early 90s, I believe. Um you started with Stratus, which you later sold to IWG. And after that, you launched Worktopia, a booking system for workspace and meeting rooms. Um, but I'd like to know what happened after Worktopia and the run up to Serendipity Labs, and in particular, your reasons for starting the business and why you decided to focus on franchise agreements.
0: Sure. Well, I'm happy to share. Uh, yes, it is quite a history going back to the early 90s. Uh, Stratus was indeed a... Um, a company that was offering shared workplace in executive suite format uh, around the country, mostly up and down the East Coast. It was acquired by Regis uh, as they were then called. Um, And that was really a rent a room business as kind of the executive suite or what then was called the key man office suite business. Uh, Can't really use that term anymore. I don't think it really applies uh, in a lot of ways. That was really a business of offering an accommodation To a person, um, so that they had resources around them, and those kinds of things that business people needed at the time. The business evolved since then, of course. But as I joined Regis, I was actually charged with helping restructure the company. They had grown very quickly into uh, run run up to their IPO, and we ended up uh, having to restructure the entire uh, U.S. operation uh, through a formal uh, restructuring. That. Really led me to think about this whole idea of the flexibility, uh, the match of leases versus our shorter term agreements, and the cyclicality of the industry. Approached you know, my next project, being Worktopia, to really be an online matchmaking or market making service for booking meeting space and desk space and airport lounges, uh, of course, executive suites uh, and uh, conference centers and hotels. And from that, really learned about. This thing called a customer journey of being able to surprise and delight and exceed expectations, anticipate need. And this was all very new and exciting to me because it never had really existed in the shared workplace business or in real estate. And so um, that company, Worktopia, we ultimately sold in 2011. And some of the same management team got together with the idea that we would put hospitality and workplace together, experiential workplace offering in a way that we could serve as an extension of the corporate workplace. So these were kind of novel ideas at the time, 2012. It was really our approach to uh, to manifest this uh, in suburbs and secondary markets, not just city centers. So in order to create that, we did adopt a model, which we had used at Stratus and we had used at Regis, which was to have company-owned locations with flexible leases, because that's about all I could take. And... Uh, also uh, licensing or franchising and that's, that's evolved really since we've began our quest with Serendipity Labs from a, a franchisee profile that was a hospitality operator, someone who operated uh, multiple hotels to something more like uh, a landlord who wants us to operate on their behalf. And, and that's, that's something that we can all chat about uh, along the way here.
1: Definitely. Um, and you mentioned there cyclicality. And I know that that's one of the things that Frank wants to talk to you about. So at this point, I'm going to hand over to you, Frank, uh, so that you can dig a a little deeper into some of John's industry knowledge. So over to you.
2: Hey, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks a lot. Um, John, you and I have known each other since uh, you started in the industry. Uh, uh, So we we have a long, long history of, of watching and working together throughout the industry. But I've always been interested in... One of your approaches is that you've always started your efforts uh, in secondary markets, um, away from that central business district where the industry is so uh, tightly held. Um, what 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 drives you to that? Do you overall what what's your view on on why you start in secondary
0: markets versus uh, central business districts? Right. Well, I think there're really two uh, reasons for that. One is uh, in order to provide something more than uh, I'll say, pretty space and a great experience, but to provide some kind of strategic solution to large customers, high quality, uh, high credit customers, you need to be in places where they're not. Um, and the largest, world's largest companies are already have uh, office space and accommodation in city centers. And it's not really just because you know the city centers are very you know highly competitive for a shared workplace. It's that we were trying to create a network that those companies could use, our client companies could use to traverse, that allow their employees to traverse suburbs and secondary markets and improve quality of life. This was about helping companies attract and retain talent and also allowing their employees to work close to home but not at home. And we felt there was a, a competitive Uh, opportunity in those secondary markets and suburbs, both with Stratus and then with Regis and and now in in the most recent uh, iteration with Serendipity Labs, with a more innovative product competing against the legacy product. So if you look at opening co-working, uh, high quality, uh, upscale, secure and trusted workplaces, uh, that are inspiring in the suburbs and secondary markets, you're really competing with legacy executive suite business. So that's, that's the kind of the other piece of it. Um, you've got the demand you know, from high quality customers um, and we can create deeper relationships with them uh, than being kind of a one-off or additional space within a city, city center. So it's actually, you know, and it's actually part of maybe my hobby horse in a way to kind of as a urban planner, uh, want to be at heart i really do think about being able to offer better ways of working and better ways of carrying out our daily lives and and suburbs and secondary market workplaces we're always kind of that future utopia of work which is kind of why i named the last company worktopia so it's it's a little bit emotional and a little bit uh, practical and and also just good sense to uh to, you know, compete where you have an advantage.
2: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know when we first started developing our own centers back in the early 80s, uh, we also went into secondary markets. Uh, and like yourself, um, I've always believed that um, just leasing space and carving it up and reletting it doesn't necessarily build a, the right foundation for a flexible workspace company. You need to have a, a mix of owned buildings, Partnerships, management contracts, licenses, as you say, et cetera. Uh, so you and I have always sort of agreed in that, in that structure. Uh, but the rest of the industry, 90% of the industry, I would say, off the top of my head, uh, just leases space. And I'm afraid that as we go into the next economic cycle, a lot of the industry is going to get uh, um, damaged by that uh, business model. Uh, what, what are your views on it?
0: Well, um, I have to tell you that after my experience uh, restructuring Regis, it uh, was about a billion dollars in leases that we restructured, you know, three million square feet when that used to be a lot <laughs> uh, of square feet. I finished the restructuring and kind of uh, packed up my box of things on my desk, said goodbye um, to the team there and to start a new company. And... Said to myself, uh, kind of like uh, Scarlett O'Hara in uh, Gone with the Wind. You know, uh, as God is my witness, I'll never sign a lease again. <laughs> and it just kind of tells you that when you go through that, uh, sometimes the, the memory of the pain wears off because uh, I have done that since then. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but that's, you know, that's to say. I think what will happen, you know, certainly what's attractive about signing a lease is you have you can uh, consolidate all the revenue and all of the net income and cash flow and show. A girth or a size of a company. And that's great on the way up. And the problem is on the way down, if you haven't done a couple of really critical things, it gets very dangerous. And so those critical things have to be, uh, aside from uh, you know, flexible leases, which is obviously ideal, or joint ventures or management agreements and licensing, some mix, it's actually to have a network. Because if you have network and scale, then you can have strategic relationships with customers and you're not just space, you're not a commodity. Uh, You're actually part of the fabric of their uh, real estate strategy and even their human capital strategy, which makes you a kind of a key vendor and a way to flex on the way down. And this was, you know, this is really well illustrated. I'll give uh, IWG the credit, uh, although I guess I may have been part of uh, the planning for it. When the 2008 recession came, the global financial crisis, uh, Great Recession, whatever you want to call it, Regis uh, North American locations were doing quite well, right, as that started in the uh, historically high 20% operating margin at the center level, which is, which is where you want to be. During the recession, which wiped out Trillions of market cap and lots of hotels and lots of entire almost industries. Regis North America mature locations only lost a couple of points of occupancy and maintained operating margins in the in the in the mid twenties, uh, mid twenty percent operating margins during the worst thing that could had happened in the U.S. Uh, economically since the Great Rece- uh, Great Depression. And the reason for that, they already had a set of mature locations, uh, which is helpful. You're not ramping up during during that situation you're not out over your skis but really it was the network created a, a set of strategic relationships with with customers that you knew how to use them on the way up and really knew how to use them on the way down because it was not you weren't selling desks or even locations you're selling the network you're selling the the flexibility and so those those things if you don't have them um, and you're a local operator with a couple of locations, you also probably need to have a great deal of charisma and uh, patience and, uh, and, and courage. But I think what happens in those cases, you know, what happens in a downturn is, unfortunately, a lot of times that's not enough. And so there becomes a, a consolidation or an evaporation, as I sometimes put it, of, of some of the smaller op- operations. Um, so I think that's important. The other thing that gets missed with is scale with larger networks and organizations. Your cost on the way in is lower because as, as, as we do and some of the others, largest companies do, uh, we have a global supply chain. Uh, we have our own furniture produced, our own lighting, our own wall systems. Um, and so that reduces the investment level as well. So, so I think structure, having a network, um, having low costs on the front end and flexible uh and flexible arrangements, but really having enough network to be a strategic offering that's that's kind of what makes the difference so you know this will be my fourth recession, uh, assuming we're going to run into one at some point here. Uh, my fourth recession in this, working in this industry. So, it, you know, although maybe our growth has not been as uh, notable <laughs> <we'll> say, <laughs> as some of the others, uh, we, are, we are built to withstand uh, a downturn by having network and by, by having flexible arrangements for, for the real estate itself.
2: Well, I, I think, you know, your, your business model kind of falls into that built to last structure, uh, because of your protection from the, some of the cyclicality that other people will see, uh, also um, I would surmise that your capital requirements for growth in your business model are not as extreme as some of the others that we see growing much more rapidly. And uh, we'll totally discount WeWork for, for that for that conversation.
0: It's real. It's true. I mean, I, I, a licensing. Most of the business, that, uh, most of the location growth that we have now, really almost all of it, is management agreements with landlords or our area developers expanding to additional locations, and that's all of that growth is self-funding. In other words, we we don't have to have capital to to open those locations. Our partners are contributing the capital to those locations, and they own those businesses. We license the platform. So, not to compare ourselves with any hubris to anything like Marriott, but you know, Marriott doesn't own and operate hotels generally. Uh, they do have a capacity to manage locations, manage hotels for third parties, for asset owners, uh, but they're not, the, the hotel industry long ago separated the real estate from the service business. And we've started out really as a service business and not a real estate business at all. Um, so that gives us an ability to grow and to areas where capital normally uh, venture capital or private equity wouldn't follow normally it allows us to get into secondary markets and suburbs with multiple locations whereas if you raised venture capital you can't you can only go to Indianapolis so many times you can only go to Columbus so many times uh, before your uh, venture capital investors say well why aren't you doing more in New York and LA and you know some of the other markets so so the capital structure also um, has an impact but when, you, when you're a self-funding growth business model, it's really just making the model work that grows it.
2: One thing you you've, uh, were talking about in, in terms of your platform, uh, you use the term scale, scale, scale a lot of times. What do you think is the necessary scale to be able to effectively service the larger multi-site clients? Uh, and let's just use the U.S. as an example. You've got around 35 or 40 locations. Right. Um, uh, IWG has around 1,100. <laughs> they do. Yeah. There's, a big, there, there's a big gap. <laughs> what do you think is this, the breakthrough number for scale?
0: I would take scale in a couple of dimensions. And scale is the number, you know, you could say the number of locations or the number of square feet. But scale is also in your platform. So being able to deliver the same Experience the same uh, secure, trusted uh, compliance measurement. For instance, personal data security. As if you're a one-off operator or have even a handful of locations, very hard to meet corporate standards for technology security, as well as workplace duty of care, personal data security, uh, audit trail compliance. Uh, there are a number of th- number of um, aspects of scale that have really nothing to do with the number of locations. And so when we set out, we started with the technology platform, the service delivery platform, so that we could open locations. We can open a location in the cloud, run all of our testing before the physical location even exists. That means that we can measure and manage and have visibility on every aspect of the business, end to end. Uh, So from the time someone arrives on our website or calls our call center, all the way through to a renewal or an exit at some point. Having data on all that means you have a platform, means you can run the business um, and know when, what to do next and how to how to price them. Look at your forward order book even for instance. So I, I would say scale is, is the girth of the platform that enables you to then open the next location for a very low incremental effort. Um, so that's scalability um, and that also means that you can license it, and you can sell, you know, sell licenses to that platform. So that's one way. Yes, but to answer your question more directly, you know, I think having a good set of secondary markets and suburbs in the you know fifty to one hundred location range is kind of a nice place to be. Um, we anticipate being there over the next you know eighteen to twenty four months, and um, that's that's when you can sit down with, and which we do already. But when you sit down with the Heads of uh, corporate real estate strategy, or um, head of uh, uh, for a company, or head of occupier services for a, a large real estate service firm, and be able to say, "You need our inventory; otherwise, you don't have a market." Because we can we can deliver on a more of a strategic rollout. We can we can tackle a significant part of your problem, and not just be you know one operator with one bill. You get out of hundreds.
2: Well, you know, some, of the, some operators that are growing right now are looking very closely at uh, larger user groups. And I think we would all, those of us that have been in the industry for a long time would say that the, the, the next wave of new customers into the flexible workplace industry uh, are going to be the large corporates. They've always been strong, but they've used this tactically in the past, and now they're starting to use this strategically uh, for a number of their own reasons, uh, both uh, recruitment and talent challenges that they have, um, which lend themselves well to your your market strategy of, of the secondary markets. Um, but in addition, uh, changes in accounting structures, uh, liabilities, and the balance sheets of leases, uh, trying to match the cyclicality of their employee life cycle to their lease cycles, all these things that impact their stock value. So the next big gr- group of clients is going to come flooding from the corporates. And we're seeing uh, all of that uh, right now starting to pick up. Uh, some of the other companies though uh, are doing literally build to suit Um And if we go back to your time in Regis, uh, you remember Regis's old green space strategy where they would have large workstation space built and tied to their centers for customers. So, again, this isn't a new theory. Um, But how do you think that impacts Serendipity Labs versus others that are really focusing in that area?
0: Yeah, I mean, this, this, this is a really good um, distinction that has to be drawn. I think when you look at flexible workplace, a lot of the big numbers and that people talk about amount of square footage that's been added, uh, amount of revenue in the industry, a lot of that has to do with what some companies call enterprise clients, which is really a misnomer. It really is, they should be calling them sublet clients, uh, where they're subletting you know, huge swaths of space uh, to, an, to a single customer. And I would differentiate that very, you know, put a bright line between that and a shared workplace operator and a shared workplace operator, of course, has multiple companies in the same facility, balancing risk and, you know, creating a aggregating, a mix of revenues um, from a mix of uh, different customers. So I think if you're looking at kind of the HQ style format, which is a subletting um, program that... um, that some companies are doing. I think that was done in a very cynical uh, tactic by those companies who are trying to show growth. They're trying to show workstations in production growth, trying to show square footage growth, and trying to show revenue growth without actually being in this business. They're really just being in the sublet business. And that, when you do a customization on a one-year deal and you've signed a 10-year lease, that's the extreme version of the risk in this industry. And that's not really a business plan. Yeah, that's more of a suicide mission.
2: Yeah, no, I I would have a tendency to agree that I think the uh, <clears throat> one-off projects that are done on sublets are actually uh, belong inside of the brokerage community rather than inside of the shared workspace community.
0: Well, I mean, I think I think what it what it does show though, and this is what's in a way kind of catalyzed the overall enterprise. Or sorry, uh, corporate account customer uh, interest in the industry is they've been they've tasted this flexibility, and yes, it, it's not really sustainable to keep offering that in those ways. Although you know, there are a couple of companies that still do that for sure, but they are, are turned on to this idea of flexibility, outsourcing, uh, workplace as a service, as we've been trying to call it for a long time. It really has been coming kind of workplace cloud. Uh, so I think that what we're seeing is. A tipping point, because of all the factors that you mentioned, the accounting rule change, the ass, you know the trying to get things off the balance sheet, flexibility, business cycles being short, all those things that we know, it's actually that created the, the tipping point for for organizations, companies uh, to have a strategy around it. So you now have large multinational companies with a work, flexible workplace strategy in place. It's already been championed by their CEO and CFO, and everybody's on board. It's not a tactical uh, one-off, put a few people in this market type of approach. At the same time, which actually just makes it even more uh, uh, more exciting, is you have the real estate service firms that have global corporate occupier advisory services that uh, that advise these large companies creating their own advisory service um, set of, uh, of offerings. So if you, if you were to name the top four or five global real estate service firms, they all today uh, have a flexible workplace uh, vertical for their advisory services that, makes market, that can make a market by tapping uh, asset owners for space, operators like ourselves and a few others uh, to operate share workplace and their own corporate customers. And it's it's a perfect it's it's this perfect storm of, of getting, uh, ev- everybody aligned. The landlords aligned. The corporate occupiers aligned. The real estate service firms aligned. And Frank, you'll you'll remember not too long ago when we really kind of had to beg brokers to come see us, and you know offer <laughs> offer, offer them a, a hosted event with beer and and, and, and a and a uh, you know some kind of uh, electronic the latest. Electronic gadget for them to even show up. Now, yep, now, well, now they understand how to sell, and they understand how to buy our product, which is great. So you know, things have come a long way in the last eighteen months. Uh, but I don't think that the uh, enterprise or large corporate company demand really has to manifest itself in you know, 300 people at a time, we get those kinds of requirements very frequently, you know, and and we just say no. And and 20 and I'll take 20 and 30 people. I'll take 10 of those. (laughs) Give me 10 of those. And, uh, uh, you know, the 300. Okay, if you're a major corporate customer of ours, and we're doing a lot of business together, and you want us to help you do something bespoke, that's a project. And yeah, you can pay us to do that. You know, we're
2: not gonna sign a lease. No, I, I, no I, I get that. And and, and I, I see uh, your direction in, in that regard and agree that th- those are really two different businesses. Uh, but unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they're carrying the same labels. Uh, and so terminology in our industry and how it's used and how we define things is becoming more and more important uh, as, as we go forward, uh, you
0: know, for sure. It, it is. But, you know, I would say that even if you took all those out, even if you took those big Chunky, we used to call them lumpy deals when we were at Regis. If you took all those out, uh, you would still have a mass kind of migration from conventional leasing to flexible arrangements. And I just saw a statistic by um, Newmark Newmark, Knight-Frank last week. Uh, It was a chart that they put together. And what it uh, showed was that conventional leases, uh, conventional lease transactions in the top 12 U.S. markets under 10,000 square feet to fallen thirty nine percent, the number of transactions has fallen thirty nine percent over the last four years, three and a half years, for requirements under ten thousand square feet. So that sounds big, but if you look at the legacy of ten thousand square foot requirements going from non renewing uh, in their their existing lease, they probably it's probably thirty people, it's probably twenty five people <laughs> that they've just given a ton of space to, and so those everything that everything that's a renewal. In uh, conventional leasing under 10,000 square feet is a potential for a shared workplace opportunity. And if you look at, again, back to city centers, about 50% of the transactions are under 10,000 square feet. If you go to a secondary market or suburb, it's about 70 to 80% of the at transa- least transactions, are under 10,000 square feet. So that's a Target-rich environment, as someone once said in the 1980s in a movie, we all know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, uh, no, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you're talking about uh, technology and your systems, your platform, uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> facility is important, but how important do you think that our industries? Use uh, and provision of technology will be over the next five years. By comparison to just facility, um, uh, to me, I almost don't care where I sit, so long as it's clean and quiet. Right. Well, uh, there, I mean,
0: th- th- this but, podcast, that, uh, this podcast is evidence of that. We're we're all sitting in different <laughs> share workplaces around the world. Uh, exactly. Today. I mean, on this one, on this one, um, on this one conversation. So yeah, so I think there too, if one thinks about offering workplace as a virtual which isn't kind of old, old-timey term now, but it, it, to think of it as selling a network um, of places and access, instead of thinking about it as a desk and a chair in a room, then you're in the, headed in the right direction. Because if you do have network, or if you're part of a consortium or a part of a network that has an ability to aggregate demand, and distribute that demand through technology uh, and has an ability to have the members traverse that network in a way that is seamless then that's where things are headed and so there there's a bit of a bar now the great thing is that there are some great providers in, to our industry today that we didn't have the benefit of you know even five years ago, and we had to build everything ourselves but thankfully there are you know and you know there has been some great uh you know there have been great strides in that. But still, you have to put the systems together and they have to be a cohesive kind of business process that is measurable and auditable and and actually tells you something that you can then act on. So I think this idea of place starts to be subsumed by the idea of access. And that kind of gets exciting and, you know... We've talked about it, Frank, but, you know, you don't want to be too far ahead of the market uh, because then you're alone and nobody knows what you're doing. And I've certainly done that before, but I think that's that's what we see at the edges. I'll give you an example of that. So uh, of our locations, we do evening events. It could be a talk. It could be um, something promotional. It could be educational. That's a lot of content that's happening in our locations. Connecting up those locations, which we can through technology today through a service that we subscribe to, and we we can record, edit, distribute that content to our network, uh, which also makes our network valuable as a publishing platform of content. Meaning, if you wanna, you know, if someone wants to give a talk on how they had their furniture made in Vietnam, that's content that helps them or promote their book or what or promote whatever it is they're doing. Uh, that is a way for us to aggregate uh, and, and produce and publish content uh, that makes it all one network. And, you know, to me, those kinds using the physical network to create this digital value uh, of experiencing the brand or experiencing the, the access is real now. and And, and you know, we're doing things like that. So, that's where what's next, I guess, in a way is is we're not going to be selling desk. Hopefully, we're not just selling desk today. We're selling the network. We're selling access to content and participation in content and participation in a, uh, a way of life. <laughs> so that, sound, that may start to sound, I'm not going to try and raise the conscious, consciousness, that was the other guys, but but uh, we can we can't improve the quality of life, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's a good place to start wrapping
2: up here, John, because it hits the point of that people, place, and technology, but you're adding that quality level, which a lot of people would refer to as community, uh, into the uh, structure and i think one thing that our industry is is built on we are built around that people place and technology uh three three legs to the stool so to speak but as we cycle through things at one point in time people are more important meaning services from people at another point in time place becomes important and other points in time uh, technology becomes the leading element but those the, those rotate around. And, and I'm seeing that that's uh, uh, going to be a uh, part of the continuum as we go forward.
0: Well, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. And pulling those together in a way that they're symbiotic is, is uh, critical. But I th- in terms of where that goes, having a diverse set of revenues, and I mentioned that very, just touched on it very briefly before, but having this ability to serve as a drop-in club Where you experience it with easy access and you're automatically on your own VPN and all those wonderful things. Uh, Experience it as a guest or a host of a medium sized meeting for 70 or 80 people. Experience it as a a team member that drops into your team regional office. All those things are so much more rich and complex than renting a desk. That's what creates value. And it, it also is what actually makes us, as an industry, an extension of corporate controlled space and really be an outsourced workplace provider and not just, I'll say it again, not just desks.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's really great. Well, John, I really want to thank you for your time today. Uh, And I want to follow up on a couple of the the comments that you made uh, later on, uh, just privately or possibly in another session down the road and and look at how we can avoid uh, some of the legacy issues around technology as an industry that have uh, really plagued uh, some of the larger uh, operators that have been around for a long time.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. And thanks very much. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. And it's always good to be be with you. And thank you, John. <laughs>
1: thank you, John. We've really enjoyed hearing from you, um, hearing the story of Serendipity Labs and your quest to create a uh, workplace utopia and your thoughts on the future of work. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. And we hope to have you back on the Future of Work podcast again very soon. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio and Podbean. And don't forget to head over to allwork.space where you can sign up to the newsletter to receive new podcast alerts. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?